The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. This is Wheel Bearings. I'm Dan Roth from Forbes and uh, Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I'm Sam Abul Samet from Navigant Research and uh, Autonomous Vehicle Engineering and uh, the Tech Guy Radio Show and all kinds of other places where you can just Google my name. And yeah, find I me. think we need a podcast just so you can tell us all of the outlets that you <laughs> contribute to. And I'm Rebecca Linland from RebeccaDrives.com and a little bit of Forbes and TV Print and Radio. Yeah. Outstanding. There you I, go. <laughs> look at that. D- diverse way to get your fix of our opinions, should you want them. Yeah. <laughs> and you do because you're here. So uh, let's give you some opinions. We'll talk about uh, cars again this week before we do anything else. But we have the New York show coming up, and there's a very, very exciting day. A new holiday for uh, July 18th. Um, We'll do our normal Tesla talk a little bit and then uh, talk about the New York Times talking about the Boeing 737 and whatever else strikes our fancy. Uh, But you know what? Let's just go down the list. Sam, you've got the 2019 Nissan Murano Platinum, which sounds really nice and looks good. Is it as good as it looks? Yeah, it it is. I mean, I've I've liked the Murano, especially in its current generation form, uh, since it came out a few years ago, and it got a, a mild, very mild refresh for for the 2019 model year. <clears throat> Excuse me. And I think you know the you know the the interestingly you know everybody thinks of the Murano as a crossover, but it's it's actually kind of a a weird little quirk of the way the EPA um, regulations work. Uh, for classifying vehicles for fuel economy, for corporate average fuel economy, uh, you know, when manufacturers submit a vehicle to you know to EPA for certification, they have to decide divide to um, pick out uh, a segment for that vehicle. You know, for sedans, it's pretty straightforward. You know, and you got you know small, medium, large cars. Uh, for um, pickup trucks, you know, obviously light trucks, vans, light trucks. Uh, but when you get into SUVs and crossovers, things can get a little weird. Uh, and so the, uh, uh, 
the way that the way that they define um, you know because they actually calculate the corporate fuel economy for trucks for light trucks and for cars separately there's counted as two separate fleets and so for SUVs they have two classes of SUVs they have um, small SUVs and standard SUVs standard SUVs are counted towards the truck fleet small SUVs are counted towards the car fleet if they're two wheel drive wait small what? SUVs yes. that are four wheel drive are, are counted as light trucks. But because there's no hard and fast rule necessarily how what what fleet or which category most vehicles are actually supposed to go into, um, manufacturers actually have some flexibility. So at Nissan, the Pathfinder is actually classified as a small SUV, and a small SUV is one that has a gross vehicle weight rating of less than six thousand pounds. Okay, if it's over six thousand pounds, uh, then it's it's a large it's a standard SUV and it's a truck, but for the Pathfinder, they they made it fifty nine hundred and eighty five pounds. So they limited, <laughs> they artificially limited the payload capacity. Oh, it's so. So it's, it's a small SUV. Uh, it's that, wait, it's wait, is that the clearly a large? Is that the gross vehicle weight, or is that the? Yeah, okay. that, that's the gross vehicle weight. I was going to say so it's that's not the that heavy. Vehicle. That's the gross vehicle. That's the the weight of the vehicle plus its payload. Plus its payload, right? Its maximum payload. So it's fifty nine eighty five. People and cargo in, and stuff. Car, yes, everything you can put. It. That's the most you're supposed to put into it. The Murano, on the other hand. As much as we like to complain about why are people driving SUVs instead of station wagons, looks like an SUV, looks like a crossover, but it's actually classified as a station wagon. What? Only in two-wheel drive? No, in, 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 in any forms. form. It's classified as a, as a station wagon. It's not even classified for EPA certification purposes as an SUV. So the four-wheel drive ones count towards the car fleet as well as the two-wheel drive Why? Ones. I don't get that. I mean – how did they? How did they get away with that? It's, uh, um, well, I mean, the the rules, you know, as far as you know, what counts towards what are generally kind of vague. Right. Uh, so you know, the manufacturers have some discretion as to which category they want to put a particular vehicle in, and then uh, you know, in the case, you know, in cases like this one, and there's other examples that we can find, you know, from other manufacturers. But uh, you know, generally, what they're trying to do is, you know, they're looking at okay, how many of each model line do we think we're going to sell? They know what their targets are that they have to hit for corporate average fuel economy for for cars and light trucks. And so basically they're trying to, to balance, you know, if they think they're doing, um, you know, that they're going to be well ahead on the, the car side and maybe lagging behind a little bit on the truck side, um, then, you know, they may take something like the Pathfinder, which is clearly a large vehicle, and classify it as a small SUV and, you know, by limiting the, the gross weight rating. And, you know, so then, ha- you know, half of the Pathfinder fleet ends up counting towards the cars because they've got a lot of fuel efficient cars that bring up their average so that, you know, then when they add in the Pathfind- the front wheel drive Pathfinders, they, they fit in fine there. And the same thing goes with the Murano. Um, so it's just a matter of kind of budgeting. You know, some manufacturers do this all the time, but, you know, budgeting, they're doing their fuel economy budgets. So it's kind of a weird little quirk of the system. You know, I could see the argument for the Murano being a, a station wagon. I, and I think you could actually yeah, extend that. I mean, it is that. basically yeah. just a high-riding, mid-sized station wagon. Right. You could actually extend that to the um, to the Pathfinder if you really wanted to. I've driven no other vehicle that reminds me more of the <laughs> yeah. late 70s B-body uh, GM wagons, just the way it behaves on the road, than a Pathfinder. <laughs> that's, <laughs> so, that's actually a very good point. 
um, um, yeah, but, that, that, yeah, it, it, you know, it, okay. So, so as, as you know, as much as we complain about, you know, why are people buying you, you crossovers instead of station wagons? You know, the reality is they actually are buying station wagons. They're just they sit a little bit higher than traditional station wagons. So, what did you it's think of the Murano? Oh, oh yeah, that. I <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know I, I I actually really like the looks of the Murano. Mm. You know, I think it's actually the the best execution of kind of that, that current generation of the Nissan design language, um, you know, that uh, V-Motion design language or whatever it is they call it. And I, I think, you know, I, I think it's it's a really nice design. Everything is kind of really well balanced. You know, it's got some nice swoops and everything. And it, it just, I think it looks good. And, and it actually drives quite well, too. I mean, it's, you know, it's based on the... Um, Similar architecture to the um, Maxima and Altima, um, and it you know it's got d- good ride quality. Um, you know, with the VQ V6 in there with a little shy of 300 horsepower, it's got plenty of power. Um, you know, I think the um, the Nissan Xtronic CVT is is still you know remains the, probably the best execution of a CVT among any manufacturer. Uh, you know, it doesn't really feel have that CVT kind of motorboating feel to it. It, you know, it it feels more like a traditional transmission. Right. Um, so, you know, it, it's it's a nice vehicle to drive. The kind of kind of the only real complaint I had, you know, and this one was uh, the Platinum uh, edition. Um, so it was you know pretty much fully loaded with you know every option, nice leather interior and wood trim and everything. Um, the infotainment system. Uh, in the in the Nissans in the current generation Nissans, the interface is fine. You know, it's it's a little bit old feeling. It's not not the the prettiest interface, but it, it works fine. But it is very slow to boot up, and especially when you plug in a phone and you want to use Android Auto or Apple CarPlay, it does take a long time to launch that. Uh, you know, so you know, I get in the car, you know, plug in the phone, and you know, it's not until I'm backed out of the driveway and starting to drive down the street that the Android Auto screen actually comes up. Uh, it takes that long. Uh, but aside from that, you know, every, everything else uh, is, is nice. I have, I have no real complaints. So it's interesting because I happen to have the Murano this week as well, and it's a Platinum and the whole thing. And I actually drove my sister and her family to the airport this morning, and there was four of us, and they had four bags. One was a large uh, checked bag size and then three good size carry-ons. And first of all, they fit perfectly all in the back, straight, like straight up on the side. And everyone was commenting, because my sister used to have a Murano years ago, on just how comfortable it was. And I didn't find that with the HMI. It actually, it it came on very, very quickly and worked great. We had Waze on through Android Auto and and it worked terrific. The issue that I have that is su- really surprising to me, and I actually took pictures to reach out to our PR friends at, at Nissan, is the quality of the fit is dreadful. I, the the dry the passenger side front door is completely crooked. So huh. so above the front, when you look at the dashboard above the vents. On the right side, in the in the passenger side, there is a gap that your finger can fit into, and on the driver's Wait, side, there's almost from none. the exterior or interior both. So I first noticed it on the on the exterior that the door, the trim where the where the door meets the A pillar and runs through the A pillar, 
it, it was crooked. I was like, this is, and, and and when the guy dropped it off, I said, this looks really weird. And then when I got in the vehicle, the entire door is off. It doesn't, huh. we don't necessarily find it, you know, in terms of the, the vehicle's still quiet. It still drives really nicely, but I am. The door, the door sounds like the door is just significantly misaligned. It is significantly misaligned. And I'm absolutely shocked that it would leave the factory like this. Well, maybe it didn't. Maybe you got one of those journalist specials that somebody crashed into something. <laughs> and they fixed well, it has it. 1100 miles on it. And like I said, when, when uh. the FMI guy dropped it off, I, I, you know, we were walking around kind of talking about Nissan and, and I looked and I went, what is like, it was so noticeable that, you know, and he, he didn't indicate that the vehicle had been, had had any issues. And like I said, it has 1100 miles on it. So it's, it's fairly new to the fleet. I was just, I'm really, really surprised by that because otherwise I, I really liked it. You know, it's well, so yeah. Um, uh, do the, does the body line? Lineup because this is pretty significant bone line that runs down from the basically from above the rear rear lights down to under the mirror is sort of its its lowest point and then it kicks up and goes into the front fender so it goes across four panels and if the door is misaligned that's going to be misaligned um, or is it just like there's just a giant honking gap there you that, know what I'll, you know, yeah I'll look at it more closely I I don't have the um, I'm driving something else as well so I don't have it right here but I will I'll look at it more closely. It just, um, it was really, I mean, it was so noticeable. And so then this morning I showed my sister and, and my, my 10 year old niece from the back, she was like, wow, look at that. (laughs) Like it's, (laughs) I mean, it's pronounced. Yeah. Yeah. And and some of it may be on the interior, the way the dash and the door panel comes together, there's definitely going to be a gap there, but yeah. It's, it's so far off from the driver's side. That's. That's the thing that I noticed was that, you know, it's it's fine. You're, you're supposed to have that little where the door and the dash meet. But yeah. the driver's side is very, very tight. And the passenger side, as I said, I can literally put my index finger th- into that hole. Yeah, I'm looking at the photos of, of the one that I had and. Uh, I did not have any, I mean, everything was perfectly fit and aligned on, on the one that I had. So, yeah, it sounds like you definitely got a lemon there. There's something definitely <laughs> wrong with that. And I, and I, I'm, I am kind of, especially for a press fleet vehicle, I mean, they usually go over those with a fine tooth comb. You know, when, usually, you know, if it, when it comes back, you know, if it's got, you know, if you happen to scrub a little, um, scrub a curb a little bit and, you know, scrape a wheel, uh, you know, they will, they will let you know. Right. And, you know, so it it seems unusual for something that obvious to, uh, to get through. Yeah. It, it's, it's, as I said, I'm very, very surprised that it left the factory like this. I'll send you some pictures so you can post them. Yeah. I'd love to. Yeah, love yeah. For sure. maybe, we, maybe we can uh, drop a picture or two in the post. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, you know, listeners can see what we're, we're talking about. Um, and it's a shame, as I said, cause I, I think the vehicle is, I really like it. You know, there's things yeah, that are really good about it. Yeah, and and that you know, like you said, the cargo area is quite spacious. You know, because it's only a two row, they don't try to they didn't try to squeeze in a third row. You know, because they have they have the Pathfinder if you need a three row vehicle. Right. And so you've got lots of room for four bags in there and and assorted other uh, accoutrements for traveling. Uh, you know, and the back seat is quite roomy as well. Yeah, so. I mean, do you feel like it's? Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. 
I was just, did you feel like it's a uh, an issue with the Murano just because it's been around for so long that sometimes you need to be reminded that it's here? Because every time I drive one, I, I like it. Um, I find them, you know, like you said, they're comfortable, they're quiet, they're, you know, powerful enough. And in the, the trim that they send out for journalists, it's always like the platinum trim or whatever. So they're very nice. They're, they're almost in that like semi-luxury space when they're dressed up mm. like this. Um, but it's a vehicle that I sometimes forget is there. Well, I mean, it's in a segment where there's so much competition as well that, you know, it would be, it would be easy to forget that it exists, you know, what, but you know, when you see one though, because it it does, it's design does quite stand out from the crowd in that segment and that, that midsize two row crossover segment, you know, you compare it to something like a Ford edge or, uh, you know, or what, you know, whatever else is out there. And, you know, it does, it does stand out quite a bit. So um, I'm surprised that it, it actually doesn't sell better than a lot of its competition. I, I don't know how much, I, I mean, I don't know the last time I saw an ad from the Murano. So I don't know how much marketing dollars they're putting behind it, but yeah. I agree. I think, I Good think point. that they, I think it's a really, really nice vehicle. I mean, it's perfect for a small family you know, or empty nesters. I mean, I think it's, you know, again, like judging from our experience this morning, packing it for somebody going away on a trip, it was, it was tight for sure. You can't put any gear. Uh, and so, you know, I think we talked, even talked about it, like the fact that the Pathfinder would be a, would be better suited for somebody with one or more kids. But, um, but I think otherwise, as you say, though, Sam, it's, it's an incredibly competitive segment. So yours, Sam, yours is the platinum. Does it have the quilted leather and the uh, yep, the got all, what's what's the fancy color? Uh, uh, let me see what what they call it. Uh, it is uh, it, it's the the mocha almond pearl. Oh, that's that's it's like a, the it's a brown. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but it's it's a really attractive color. Yeah, mine's a bl- a beautiful blue. I don't have the sticker here, um, but the deep yeah, the deep, deep blue pearl. Blue, yeah. that's gorgeous. Yeah, so that's yeah. like these are the things, and, and it's probably why they're sending you the the platinums in the fleet is um, for 2019. Although it's a a model that's been around for a while, they're they've got some updates for it. So they changed the grill a little bit. They they popped in some uh, LED headlights. So I'm interested to know how those perform because the whole industry is going toward LED head headlights at least as a premium feature, and some are better than others. Although given the technology, they should all be really good. Uh, there seems to have been some backsliding on headlight quality uh, back to the days where you'd have, you know, patchy patterns and just crappy illumination. Yeah. Um, and, and so even though we have these LEDs that are very efficient and bright, uh, they don't always put the light where you need it on the road. And it's impossible to upgrade like it was, you know, like you could do in the old days. So, you know, they they, they went with LED lights and then the new colors and um the the luxuriousness in the interior, which seems to be the pattern when you've got a model that's been around for a while, you um, you add luxury and features <laughs> and packages. And, you know, in, increasingly customers are opting for those more premium trim packages anyway. Well, it's nice. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it, it's a it's a nice place to spend time. You know, when you got to drive somewhere, and you know, for the automakers, you know, it's uh, you know huge margins on that. You know, the 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 incremental the extra price that they charge to go from you know from an sv to a platinum um is significantly more than 
um, what the the added cost of adding that uh, that hardware. Yeah. And for families too, they I guess this year they added the rear door alert, which is does it? Are you getting that? Like every time you shut it off, does it tell you to check the rear doors or something like that? No, the the way the way it works is um, it actually uh, pays attention to which door is open before you start the car or you know before before you move. So if it you know if it saw that the rear door opened and then closed, uh, and then you go somewhere. Then it'll give you the alert that you know, hey, check the back seat, make sure you haven't left something behind. If it, if the door hasn't opened again, um, if uh, you know, if you don't open the rear door, if you just get in and, and drive, and you know, then it won't give you any kind of alert. Um, in my case, you know, I used it to go to a couple of meetings, you know, and I threw my uh, my my computer bag in the back seat, and you know, so I had to reach in there to grab it anyway when I got out. So you know, it didn't do any of that. It didn't give me any alerts because I had opened the door and and uh, retrieved something from the back. Yeah, sim- oh. similarly, it's a, it's smart. So if you don't open the back door, you won't get the reminder. And I actually, yeah, so- I'm sorry, I found the headlights, you know, to be quite good. I drove last night. In the dark, I drove this morning. The automatic head headlights were very good. The be- high beams and low beams responded appropriately. You know, again, I think um, overall, overall, I liked it. I think it's it's a good it's a good solid vehicle as long as your doors aligned. <laughs> yeah, and yeah. you know, for for forty six thousand dollars, that exactly. door should be aligned. I think right. the interior. Although gorgeous. you know, who knows? Maybe they're trying to emulate emulate yeah. Tesla. <laughs> Not that just the charge choice as much, and all the panels be misaligned and mismatched. Um, all right, that's enough. That's not. <laughs> uh, but it was forty six k. And what are you getting for fuel economy? I'm assuming it's like low twenties. Yeah, it's about twenty four, twenty five. Yeah, I actually yeah. got closer to twenty eight this morning when with no traffic and you know going uh, straight all highway. That's pretty good. Yeah, I I, I did more city driving with mine, uh, so it was a, a little bit lower. Yeah, no, I was right, so I, Go ahead, sorry. Uh, I was just going to say something ridiculous, so go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> no, I was very pleased with uh, that. Was, that was, uh, the rest of the trips have been in town, and, and I was getting similar, Sam. Uh, but the highway one was really good. It, and it gave me a little reward of saying, you know, best, something about best fuel economy that I had driven. So that was nice. Yeah, when when you stop the car and shut it off, it all you know flashes up on the screen. You know what your uh, your average for the current trip was and what your uh, best overall has been. So you know, just as a reminder, it's like, hey, uh, you were uh, a little a uh, little hot on, hard on the gas pedal this trip. You, know, you might want to back off a little. I hope you can shut that off. <laughs> yeah. um, oh, all right, well, let's move on to, to what limit. you're driving. Yeah, oh, oh yeah. right, exactly. Uh, you're not going to have a choice after a while. You're just going to do the programming in with the GPS, and it's just, it's, you're going to be stuck. Um, so, Rebecca, you've had a couple of things. Uh, you had a Blazer, you had an Outlander PHEV, and, uh, and you're at least coming up on the Eclipse Cross. I don't know if you've got it. I have um, the, right, I have the Eclipse Cross. So, um, let's see. Do we want to, so I've got the Eclipse Cross, and I drove the, Mitsubishi Outlander as well. So I had two Mitsubishis back to back because I was supposed to be um, meeting with some of their executives. So I said, you know, I haven't driven these vehicles in a while. And so if we're talking about, let's start with the PHEV, the Outlander PHEV. Uh, This is the 2019. 
Um, honestly, I didn't drive it very much uh, through a variety of circumstances, which was unfortunate um, because I wanted to try and get a better feel for the vehicle. But this one has, uh, it, you're able to basically charge it. It gets 74 miles per gallon E and uh, and then 25 miles per gallon in general. So I think it had, I want to say it had maybe 40 miles of range at most. Uh, and it's kind of like a smart range. So you can adjust it, uh, you know, right. depending upon what what you're doing. And so sometimes, so if you, like when I, I, when I was testing it, I put it in all PHEV mode to see how that was. And then in gas mode, but the, I think the biggest issue that I had was that it was the, the tire noise and the overall noise of the vehicle was so loud that I thought there was something wrong with it. Like I, I, I picked up my brother and I said, please drive on these roads with me and tell me, am I, am I going crazy around the twists and the turns? It made this groaning noise that was just overwhelming. I mean, it was weird and it almost felt like something was rubbing against, against something else in the vehicle. And I don't know, have you guys driven? I have actually. It's, yeah. That we, we both okay. have. I, I so I don't I don't know about the the rubbing noise other than maybe that's the the electric drivetrain doing regen or, or something as you turn. I don't I, know. Well, it was definitely no. That's that sounds like there's something mechanically wrong because it shouldn't it shouldn't be doing that. You know, I mean, regen is generally not going to make any noise. Well, it sound it was it was on when I noticed it the most was on the twisties. So there's a couple of roads in town that are ideal for that kind of and forth and and the vehicle itself handled okay we finally kind of pinpointed for a mitsubishi, that, for a mitsubishi. <laughs> for a mitsubishi. <laughs> no no come but on it wasn't, you come know on. i didn't have a lot of like you know tall like you know in an suv like you know i didn't feel like it was going to tip over or something um no no it's got a heavy battery down in but there. <laughs> but it was the tire noise was really really loud on it and that's kind of what we we sort of narrowed ended up narrowing it down to I was just, you know, it was very, it was kind of just a compromised, it was a compromised ride for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that that may be the tires overall, as you make them corner, if they're low rolling resistance, they'll still sound like a bearing sometimes. Yes. It's just like, like well, the the other thing is, you know, it may be that some sort of, uh, shielding or, or, you know, noise shield or something has come loose Mm. on that one. And that may be, you know, when you're cornering, it may be rubbing against something. And that might also be contributing to more noise because I don't remember it being particularly noisy when I drove. Well, it. I no noisier than the regular Outlander. Well, which that's is interesting. Well, for forty-two, exactly almost quiet. forty-three thousand dollars. I mean, you've got to have a serious dedication to the environment to want this vehicle. <laughs> so yeah, you know, and it, this is where I, I I was really curious about the the Outlander PHEV because it's not a new car at all. Right. It's old stuff but um it's been updated it you know as much as they can mitsubishi's in this the struggle i think uh the phev can do a, a couple of different things that i think are pretty unique in its class you can fast charge it 
if you can find a fast charger <laughs> that will do it. Actually, there, there's quite a few now. There's there's over a thousand Chatamo stations uh, around the country. Okay, good. I mean, I, I when and, I had and it, Mitsubishi I didn't have time is to... the only other one besides Nissan that's using Chatamo in the U.S. market. So is that good or bad though? Is does that make it harder to find a, a station for, for you to uh, charge? Like you couldn't go down to your supercharger station and, and get. No, but you you can't you can't charge anything else other than a Tesla at a supercharger station. But um, you know, like you know, most uh, most DC fast charging stations, uh, you know, whether they're EVGo, ChargePoint, Electrify America, they all have both Chatmo and uh, um, CCS charger charging cables, charging connectors on there. So you know, last time I was in California with the uh, the Nero EV, you know, I stopped at a couple of different EVGo stations. And you know each of the uh, chargers had both both cables on there, so you could pick one or the other, whatever, depending on what car you had. Yeah, and I, it's, the other thing I liked about it was um, that it, it's just it's not that huge, and it does offer you that switchable. You know, you can decide when you want to use the battery and when you want to just run as a, a hybrid, which I, I, I liked that. Um, and you know, at f- low forties before you try to take advantage of any tax incentives, depending on where you are. Yeah. I mean, you still get a $7,500 tax credit on that thing. So it's, yes, it's an outlander. So it's definitely like driving something from the nineties. <laughs> but on the other hand, it's, it does have a little bit of unique niche carved out for itself, which I thought it was, that was interesting because it's easy to, to be cynical about Mitsubishi right now. Um, and the, the Outlander is, uh, I think it's a unique enough, um, hybrid. And when I had it, I actually, I, I thought it was nice that you don't miss any of the functionality of the, it's a, it's a three row, but it's a tiny three mm. row. Um, but, but you don't, you know, the battery doesn't intrude the way they've packaged it works pretty well. Uh, it's, you know, it's been around a while. You can, you can abuse it and it's not really going to complain. <laughs> <laughs> you can you can drive it like you stole it is what I mean because um, I did and following it was fine. the speed limit of course <laughs> <laughs> yes following the speed limit in my head uh, and I you know that little bit of extra weight that the battery gives makes it feel a little solid because it's I mean that that stuff is uh, it, it, Mitsubishi has done the best with what they've got right? they're the best that they can with what they've got which uh, you know I, I applaud so it, it, there's a little bit of underdog spirit to it but if you want a three row plug in hybrid in that size factor like what are your options other than the outlander phev highlander um, at the moment um i mean unless you go into the the premium stuff like the the bmw x5 it, um, is the highlander you know, plug, that plug-in hybrid isn't there a uh there's no plug-in, plug-in. version okay, of the highlander sorry. um but in the in the next few months you will have the option of like the lincoln aviator um, the Explorer is only going to be available as a regular hybrid, not as a plug-in. Um, but yeah, it's still it's still fairly limited right now. But I'm not sure what you but, gain. Like that's the thing is that I, I mean, unless it's a it's a HOV lane sticker in California or something. You do you do okay. get that. That's that's um, a significant get. Yeah. So that yeah that yeah, that makes sure. <laughs> that makes a big difference. And if you. Uh, um, you know, if you live in California, in addition to the $7,500 federal tax credit, there's also $2,500 state tax mm-hmm. credit. There's state credits, you know, or incentives in, in other states as well. So, you know, that can get you down, you know, down to about $30,000. And, 
And, you know, I mean, depending on, you know, if you're, if you have, you know, a relatively short commute, you may be able to do most of your driving on electricity alone. So, you know, it, it can make a right. difference. I do like, I, I'm so sad that Chevy is discontinuing the Volt because I do like having the option. I mean, I think that that's really well suited having, you know, b- both electric and gas. I just think that's really well suited for a lot of people's lives. And, you know, maybe it's, it's not necessary anymore, but, you know, I, I think it's a good option. And to that end, the, and we're, yeah. yeah, go ahead. Oh. I, I just remembered the, the other one that you should really be considering before you think about the Outlander plug-in hybrid is the Chrysler Pacifica oh. hybrid, uh, which is a much nicer vehicle. Yeah. Costs about the same, has about 33 miles of electric range. Um, and, you know, it's, you know, it's actually much roomier and, and much more uh, practical than, than the Outlander. It is not an SUV, though. It does not have all-wheel drive. That's true. So and uh, you know the SUV thing is like you if you if you're buying a three row SUV or crossover you're kind of looking for practicality so that the Pacifica is definitely a better choice but yeah yeah but you know people you know human beings don't make practical you know logical choices when no. they're buying vehicles most of the I, time I do think though if you're if you're swayed by the Outlander you are looking at it uh, you're comparing cars on a spreadsheet versus uh, your head and your heart like <laughs> kind of I think if you if you are comparing it to something like the Highlander or the Pacifica or, or whatever. If you're cross shopping, there's places where as, as good as, you know, Mitsubishi has made the Outlander with what they've got, it, it still falls short. You know, the infotainment's not good. It's better than it's been, but it's still, it's, it's, it's limited in what that architecture can do just overall, you know, it, it's, it, it's amortized hardware, shall we yeah. say? Yeah. Um, <laughs> the whole car. So, on Mr. I also have the Eclipse Cross SE trim with the 1.5 uh, direct injection turbo engine. And that's, while it's a five seater and it's not a PHEV, it does drive. Nominally a five seater. Well, yes, I, it, it, more like a four. <laughs> It has five seatbelts. <laughs> exactly. But it's but that one is more fun to drive. I mean, I'm I'm not crazy about the interior. I do and it was interesting because I was reading other people's take on it. And I maybe I'm just an interior snob, but there's a lot of hard plastic in that interior. But no, I agree with you there. But it is, you know, it's twenty-eight thousand delivered. There's a lot of fun features in it. And and I actually haven't had any issues with the infotainment system. So Android Auto worked great this morning. And I think the Eclipse Cross has a newer, better infotainment system than Mm. the Outlander PHEV. Okay, fair enough. Um, But yeah. uh, And, and, you know, the beauty of using a smartphone projection system like CarPlay or Android Auto is that, you know, even if a vehicle does come with a, a mediocre factory infotainment system, you know, you plug in your phone and then you know, it becomes largely irrelevant right. anyway. Yeah, it kind of makes you wonder when the automakers are going to uh, just give up and be like, you know what? <laughs> the standard infotainment is not, your not fault. Not anytime soon. Yeah. Well, and when you think um, Toyota but, doesn't even have Android, they don't They don't have Apple CarPlay yet, right? Uh, they, they do have CarPlay on a bunch of models now, and they just started rolling out uh, Android Auto, I think, uh, starting with the... Um, uh, the Avalon. Okay, because that's just shocking to me. It's 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 forty eight. Like the market's like forty eight fifty two split. It's just amazing to me that they don't have Android Auto and Apple CarPlay just just as 
part of the standard development package. It's crazy. Yeah. Well, we, we've, we've in the past, uh, before you joined us, Dan and I had the discussion <laughs> about BMW uh, and their policies. You know, they, they actually used to charge um, $200 extra to get CarPlay. They don't support Android Auto <laughs> at all. They, char- they used to charge 200 bucks extra for CarPlay. And they changed last year to going from a one-time flat rate fee to charging $80 a year subscription to get CarPlay. Oh, my gosh. Well, and this is why when they talk about BMW gesture things, I make inappropriate gestures. (laughs) 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 Uh, But their customers will pay it. I mean, Ah. BMW doesn't mess around when it comes to figuring out how to be profitable. (laughs) True. Yeah. Um. All right. So, yeah, the Outlander, I mean, um, I'm sorry, the Eclipse Cross is, is one that I was really excited for because it's supposedly all new, but it feels kind of old to me. Again, it, like it feels more like an update than it was sort of touted as. So I don't know if I'm wrong on that or if it's just. No, I mean, I, uh, my I, my, so Rebecca is uh, basically the theme is putting the right car in the right hands for 200 words or less. And the start of my review was Mitsubishi is the company that that could almost, <laughs> you know, they want to. And I think that there's good people there. Fred Diaz is the uh, North American CEO. He came from Nissan actually. And then, he, and he was also at Fiat Chrysler. I think that there's good people there. I think that they want to succeed, uh, but I think that they are limited brand recognition and, and consideration, I think is, is pretty low for the brand. Well, I think, uh, and the, I do yeah, like the to, fact that they uh, capitalized on the use of Eclipse is, you know, Cross. Part of the- you know, I think Oops. that's a good thing, but it, they're, they're definitely a challenged brand. And I think if you buy new, their resale value, I think is really, really tough. Um, yeah. You know, you've got to have a specific reason for going after this brand and for buying it. Well, yeah. Well, I, I think, yeah, and that's that's one of the things that we've talked about a little bit before, too, is um, given the options on the market, it's really about what kind of individual deal you're going to get. What, you know, is the Mitsubishi dealer close to you? Are they giving you attractive finance terms? You know, does it does it suit your needs? And do you want a new car versus used car? And, uh, you know, there are, there are reasons for going with all of those and ticking all those boxes. And, you know, the Mitsubishi is probably not going to be a problem as a new car owner for however long the warranty period is. Um, the issue you're going to have is resale and not every buyer really cares about resale so much. Um, so I, I get that. Right. Uh, they're just, yeah, they're, in, you're right. They're in a tough spot. Yeah. I mean, I want them to succeed. I don't want anybody ever to fail, you know, and nobody wins in that case. Um, but, and you know, I just, it's, it's tough. Cause I, again, I go in and say, okay, I want to like this. Uh, but there's definitely some compromises that you're going to make. Yeah, you know, and I think it's it's really the next generation of Mitsubishi's where things may start to get interesting, you know, as they start to transition over to platforms that they share with the uh, with Renault and Nissan. Uh, as, now that they're part of the alliance, are, are they going to continue to be true. part of the alliance, or have the wheels come off of that? No, not at all. Well, they, for 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 now, they are. <laughs> I, I don't think uh-huh. the wheels have come off that alliance at all. I think internally, they're still. A lot of people. Yeah, there's hundreds and there's, hundreds there's of people be, working on that work on on development based on the alliance. It wasn't just Carlos going. Yeah, and, 
Right. And and there's going to be a lot of, you know, th- there's going to be some realignment of the structure. But, you know, I think that there's there's too much value to those three companies, especially to Renault and Nissan, in in sharing the, the hardware that they do and, and sharing the technology that they do uh, for them to walk away entirely from the alliance. Because, you know, the reality is, you know, in the coming, you know, coming decade, there's going to be more consolidation of the industry, not yes. less. Yeah, well, and they have enough to, to cover it. I think it's going to be good for Mitsubishi if they can get some some Renault platforms or some Nissan platforms. But I still want them to do uh, Spec Mirage race series because that would be hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> and I would love to drive it. That's awesome. Well, that would definitely be the, the classic case of driving a slow car fast. <laughs> it would be amazing. Amazing. <laughs> and you couldn't even get hurt. Like... <laughs> They don't go fast enough. <laughs> but but before before we leave Mitsubishi entirely, uh, I just wanted to let you know. Uh, I just looked on the uh, the AFDC website. It's the Alternative Fuels Data Data Center uh, from the uh, uh, Department of Energy, and you can look up on there. You know, for uh, where to find stations for you know different fuels, whether it's electricity or biofuels or anything else. Uh, and you can filter by different types. So um, looking at uh, Chatamo stations, there's currently 2,351 Chatamo stations across North America with uh, 3,200 charging outlets. So they usually have, they're usually smaller than supercharger stations, just, you know, one or two outlets each. Uh, so there's, there's plenty of locations and they're increasingly growing in the middle part of the country. They used to be concentrated on the coasts. Uh, by comparison uh, for superchargers, there's 644 locations. So there's about a quarter as many locations as there are for Chatamo. But they, since they typically have six to 12 outlets each, they have almost 6,000 chargers, uh, charging outlets, but they're, they're fewer and far between, more far between than the Chatamo. Yeah. So charging is going to continue to be one of those things that you do at home, mostly with these kind of vehicles. Yeah. As long as you live somewhere where you can do that, you know, if you don't live in an apartment or something yeah. like that. Yeah. All right. Did we want to talk about the Blazer briefly or should I just jump into mine? Um, why don't you jump into yours? We'll talk about the Blazer okay. some other time. All right. Uh, so I had the 2019 Honda Pilot Elite, which is a lovely three-row crossover, like we've been <laughs> apparently uh, the theme this week. Um, you know, I I liked a lot of stuff about it and there's some things I, I really – kind of disliked and I feel like they're they're kind of a miss. Um the three row obviously is is one of the best features of the pilot, but I feel like if you're gonna go with the pilot, you might as well just go with the Odyssey. Because they're about the same. They kind of drive about the same. But the Odyssey's I know. a minivan. Wait a minute. It's, it's not an up, SUV. <laughs> so when you try to get to the third row on the pilot, you've got to press the stupid button on the seat to get it out of the way. And you still don't really have much room to get back there with the, mm. the Odyssey. You just, you have like a hallway. <laughs> yeah. But we all <laughs> know the practical, we all know the practical appeal of a minivan, but yeah. it's a freaking minivan. <laughs> yeah. But I, and I think that's actually better. You know, the cargo area is, is good. You know, the, the pilot's big. And even when you're using all three rows of seats, you still have, an okay uh, cargo area. It's not great. It's better in the Odyssey because it's longer and there's just, it's more square. I can, <laughs> so there's more I mean, room. I can tell you that, you know, if you're going to be a cool mom and dad, 
you're going to have and you have to oh, have a minivan totally and you have to have a minivan. The Odyssey is the cool mom and dad minivan to have. But yeah, it's still a minivan. <laughs> but, but yeah, so, OK, I feel like the minivan now is like the sort of counterculture mom and dad thing, too. Like the, the Volkswagen type two buses. No, that's a wagon. The, the 80s. Like, that, that's uh, that's a, that's a, a station wagon. <laughs> that's the counterculture. Okay. All right. <laughs> So, so a jetta wagon, uh, <laughs> <laughs> right? A jetta wagon, not the all track because that's too much like an SUV, right? We wanted like uh, anyway uh, <laughs> with a manual. Um, it, you know, the, it's it, a lot of the stuff is really easy. It's easy to get in and out of, which is is nice, uh, especially if you're transporting, you know, the young kids all the way up to you know folks in their 80s, which is just something I did with the pilot. Um, the Elite has everything. So it's got the movie player thing and. Uh, the all of that cleaner. stuff. Yeah, it, I don't. They didn't have the vacuum. It had cabin talk, which was no, interesting. That, which we left it on, and we were talking smack about someone, and they heard us. Oh no! <laughs> because it that, has the, that is a pretty cool feature. You have that like microphone in the front seat, and so you discuss things. And the kid from the third row is like, "I can hear you," you know, in my head. <laughs> like, shoot! <laughs> Forgot about that. Um. But it's – yeah, it is an interesting feature because it's so big. You know, you don't have to, to bellow quite as loud. So it's, it's – like the family features are really well thought out. It's got cup holders galore. It's got um, – you know, just everything is easy to use, even the seats to get them out of the way. There's a button on the back. There's a button on the side. Uh, so it's really feels like Honda, when they designed it, had people actually use it and say, well, OK, think about how you're going to work with this and how it's going to function. Um, I like and don't like their shifter. They're kind of deconstructed electronic shifter. It's not terrible, but it's still, there's a little bit of a learning curve. You have to remind yourself where all the switches are for it because they broke out the switch. They, they did right. very much like GMC, but not quite as bad as I was going to say, it's not as bad as the GMC terrain. Yeah. Um, but there's, you know, in my, my 10 year old was asking, he was like, why do you pull the thing in for reverse? He's like, that's so you don't, you know, it's a different motion. You can operate it by feel, which I do like, but, uh, it's still not anywhere near as easy as even a rotary controller would be. But with the rotary controller, the detents are all just clicks, um, or you know, certainly not as familiar as, as a stick. So some of that's us learning. If they're going to change the convention, we're going to have to learn the new one. Um, I really didn't like the infotainment. Um, mm. It's the touch targets are really small. The screen is really crowded. It, it all works okay. It's just not. It, it's distracting to use. And so I was <laughs> driving down the road in this thing, and I'm, you know, wandering all over the lane trying to just, you know, zoom the nav or something. And I wasn't even that distracted, but it's just. It, it, that's not good. They, they need to have people use that more and maybe take some of the crap out of the screen or, or you know, there's not really a great solution, right? Cause we talk about census with its multiple screens and it has larger touch targets, but that's also a problem. Cause then you've got to, to swipe to get the other screens. So I, I don't know. All I know is that this system was a little bit uh, cumbersome to be using and distracting, which that will go away as you own the vehicle, but the fact that the things you have to touch are small and closely spaced, that's never going away. And that I feel like that's borderline dangerous. This is a common complaint, both in Honda and Acura. The Acura RDX, that system is 
almost impossible to use. That's the one where they said we don't want to have the touch screen because we feel like it's too far away. It's distract. It's distracting. And so they put this pad in and it's awful. And I agree. I think that Honda really needs to concentrate on getting a better HMI because it's the way that you have to use that system. The learning curve is long on it. And as you say, those kinds of things, they where they are, the size of the of the touch field, those are not changing. And I've I've had a lot of concerns when I have been in their product uh, using the HMI. It's 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 not easy. And this and this to me extends both to to Honda and as well as Acura. Yeah, it's funny. I I actually kind of like the the Acura well, you're weird. RDX touchpad you're weird. system. <laughs> I, I, I am. I, what can I say? Um, but I, I don't I don't disagree on the the other stuff you're saying. Yeah, and I, I think you know. Again, I will say again that you know touchscreens do not belong in vehicles that we have to drive. I period. Agree with exclamation that. point. One hundred percent. You know they they should you know there should be some sort of remote controller. You know, and I'm I'm okay with the the um, the RDX touchpad. You know, I still prefer you know the rotary control style, the iDrive style controllers. I still think that that is the best solution that anybody's come up with yet. It's the most precise and and accurate. And and you can use it quickly. Yes. Well, and you you learn. And maybe for me, it's because I've dealt with, um, you know, like audio and video hardware, and so I'm very used to the jog dial and the multifunction kind of thing about that. So for me, I do, I also find the rotary controllers easy to use, easy to figure out. Um, they'll they'll get there. I hope. Uh, you know, and, and you, you put that together with the fact that the ADAS system also wasn't very good. Uh, it, it has all of the stuff. Uh, I guess I can't say it wasn't very good. It's, it was aggressive, and you can adjust how how aggressive it is. But I left it all in normal just to see how they think it should be. Um, and so it's it's pretty sensitive when you start to, to drift or out of a lane or if it detects cross traffic. It gets confused a bit more than I thought it would. Um, like with side streets and stuff, uh, and it's conservatively programmed, I think, to just just warn you to pay attention, which is not not terrible, uh, because it will flash the orange sort of brake indicator at you, and and sort of it gets your attention enough to just to look out. Uh, so that's fine. I would rather them err on that side of caution, but the uh, the dynamic cruise control and and stuff was just it it. It was tuned to either accelerate or brake mm. and not coast, you know, like the Germans do just a fantastic job at that. And and Volvo as well. So Mercedes, BMW, Volvo, Audi, they're all and I, those are all luxury brands. I get it. Uh, but their dynamic cruise is very smooth. And that, the issue that I have with that when it's not smooth is like, don't even bother putting it in the car. Just give me regular cruise control because – I don't want the thing riding the freaking brakes on the highway or, or whatever, or just slowing down very aggressively. Uh, I, I, I would rather just have regular cruise and, you know, keep an eye on the road and kick it out of cruise control when I'm closing too fast on stuff and then re-engage it when I've got some, some, you know, clear, clear room. It's not pleasant to be in a car that's driven that way. It's, it's almost driven by somebody, you know, like it's driven by somebody who, who doesn't have that finesse. And so I didn't I didn't like that at all. So I didn't have that much of when I I've went on the pilot 
media drive when they were trying to show how off-road capable it was, which was a lot of fun, but we didn't really use the adaptive cruise control. I will say that I'm pretty yeah. sure it was the Toyota Highlander. I made myself car sick. <laughs> <laughs> I, can I agree, had it yeah. last summer and I decided to try it out in stop and go traffic because a friend of mine was like oh my gosh it's the greatest thing i was like all right i've got new jersey traffic to contend with this will be a good example of it well i got to my friend's house and i was white as a sheet and i felt like crap because i literally was yep. car sick yep i it's the same experience <laughs> and so i'll just shut it off most of the time in, in the ones that can do it really surprised me but overall it's like you know what i'd rather not have this thing doing this yes. stuff because it sucks <laughs> <laughs> Um, and, and you know, the, the, the pilot, it does drive. It's, it's not, I didn't find it as great on the highway as I did on like surface streets, you know, back roads, especially twisty back road. It's actually decently fun to, to drive because it, it handles better than it really should. Mm-hmm. Um, and it rides pretty well in that situation, but on the highway with a full load of people or almost full load of people, it, didn't really feel as supple as I thought it should. You know, its its ride was a little harsh. Um, it felt a little ponderous, which surprised me. You know, and maybe that's just because it, it was, I don't know, it didn't have that solid sense of straight ahead that you'd get maybe uh, if it were tuned <coughs> a little differently. So, I, you know, it it's not it's not the car I would buy with my own money, but it has a lot of merit. Um, and, uh, you know, economy-wise... 21 22 which is not not great it's a big thing but if you're gonna deal with all of that again just get the odyssey (laughs) it's easier to load it's it's got more space it has all the same stuff and it drives about the same i'm I'm never gonna give you the odyssey but i will tell you (laughs) but i i know what you mean about the ponderous i felt like when i had it it drove pretty big yeah. You know, it's there's there's and I've talked about this before. There's vehicles that drive smaller. They feel smaller when you're driving them. And there's vehicles that are just big. And I felt I was always conscious of the size of the pilot. But it just yeah, was and big. it is big, to be right, fair. It it's, is. It's big, but, it, it, but it drives like it, that. too. But you're right. Yes, you're right. It drives drives way more like an SUV than I expected it to. Right. Yes. As opposed to like even like the crazy Ram 1500 that I had in Manhattan. You know, I looked back, I was like, oh yeah, I am in a pickup truck. Like, you know, that big vehicle, it didn't drive big, but I did find the pilot drove, drove ponderous, I think is, is a good word. I think I like that word for it. Yeah. That's that's my take on the the pilot. (laughs) I was a little disappointed. Um, so let's move on to topics because you know, who's not going to be disappointed. I'm trying to make the transition (laughs) work. Uh, (laughs) is, is Don Sherman. Um, Because we're finally supposedly going to actually get his uh, what, what his white whale. Uh. Yeah, yeah. After forty years of tilting at windmills, uh, Don Sherman is finally getting what he wants from a Corvette, and that's to have the engine behind the driver. You know, they made one of those. They called it a Fiero. <laughs> <laughs> no, that. That 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 never unfortunately because of the Corvette, you know they they never made the Fiero into what it could have been. 
I'd like to talk to Don about the Fiero. I bet he'd have some interesting, amusing things to say about it. But. Oh, yeah. He's always got amusing things to say about a lot <laughs> so of So I have to say, I have to confess, I have a little bit of a sp- soft spot for the Fiero because my late great father somehow worked on the interior of that through his work as uh, a heat application expert in the in a variety of industries. Okay. And this fabulous guy came to our house we had dinner with him when i think i must have been 12 or 13 years old and i was completely enamored <laughs> <laughs> well you know i also have a soft spot for the fiero because it's just cool yeah. it's uh it's a mid-engine car it, with the automatic and the iron duke you can have it but with the v6 the formula and it and it had a, a really really very very pimptacular interior <laughs> in its first uh first few years nice yeah. Well, you know, <laughs> the Fiero was only in production for about three and a half years, and it was really only in its last model year that it actually got kind of good. Yeah, it's GM. They fix um, everything, and then they kill it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, because the, you know, the original concept you know, behind the Fiero was, you know, they, they, they wanted to do more bespoke parts, you know, specifically designed for this thing. And in order to get it through the process of getting it approved, you know, they had to cut the cost down, which meant using parts from other GM vehicles. So the front end, you know, the control, you know, the dual control arm front end uh, suspension came from the Chevette, <laughs> which, believe it or not, actually had a double wishbone. Yeah, no, that suspension. doesn't surprise me. Yeah. And and at the rear, they used the front end of the Chevy Citation. Right. It was the X-Body Cradle. Uh, yeah. But, okay, so, uh, but the, the, like, other cars have done that very successfully, like the Bertone or, or the Fiat X19, which was basically a, a, I think it was, like, a 124 or 128 cradle that was stuck in the middle of the car. Yeah, but, you know, I mean, the, the Fiero was a little bit bigger and heavier, and, you know, the, you know, the bushings were softer, and it just, it just wasn't well-tuned. It didn't have enough brakes. It didn't have enough engine. You know, the Iron Duke, you know, really was it should not have ever gone in that car uh you know it, they should have just done the v6 version and left it at that but you know that's that's the way it turned out you know by the time they finally got everything fixed in the third model year then it had such a bad reputation that they finally just killed the well, whole thing and that was the roger smith era too so they do stupid crap yeah. like that where they they well, and, and we were talking about this before uh we started recording where gm would just they give you two-thirds of what they promised that first model year hurry up to fix everything else that they actually wanted to deliver with the car. And so it's on the market getting a total shellacking because it doesn't measure up. And, and this, yeah, but just wait till next year. They're like the perpetual, uh, oh, what's, what's a team that never wins the world series anymore. He was going to use the Red Sox. The Cubs. The Cubby. The, yeah, right. Well, the like Red the, Sox, the, you know. Well, I thought the Cubs just won. Both of them did. Or the Mets. The Mets. I, I don't know. <laughs> the, anyway, they're a perpetual team that's just like, just wait till next year. They're perpetual Lions. How's that? Aww. <laughs> there you go. That's it. <laughs> Definitely, definitely the Lions. Um, and like they need to stop doing that. So I, 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 to get us back to the C8, I really, really hope Don is right this time because he's had scoops about the mid-engine Corvette since like 1968. <laughs> right. Except, well, this time for the first time ever, you know, GM is actually saying, yes, it's, it's here. It's coming, you know, and they actually released photos of it wrapped in camo. Uh, you know, with, with Mary Barra, you know, she was in New York with it this week, you know, she was speaking at some event and, uh, you know, she and, uh, Taj, uh, Taj Juster, Juster, uh, the chief engineer on the Corvette, 
you know, drove up in this thing and, and she got out of it and they announced that they will be revealing the, the next generation Corvette, the C8, July on July 18th, 2019. Are they going to have uh, which, which, that? Which henceforth will be known as either Don Shihote Day or Don Sherman Tilts at Windmills Day. <laughs> I like Don Shihote Day. I think we, we should coin that right now and we should make definitely make sure we get credit so for it. So let me ask you, is there some um, significance to July 18th that I don't know about? Not okay. that I'm aware of. Uh, but yeah, I don't. I don't know either. They'll tell you if there is. They'll certainly make. Well, point. it is. I mean, they did highlight the eight. I mean, it, it may. It may well be the day the original Corvette was. Yeah, in that's fifty-three. So they did know. highlight the eight for probably for the C8 in the July 18th. Yeah. But you know, eight eight. 19 may have been better, but it's, it's yeah. A th- it's a okay. Thursday, so I, I, I don't know. I, I'm, not, I'm not aware of any particular significance okay. to that day. Okay. Uh, and they haven't said where it'll be revealed or anything, but, I mean, you know, we've been seeing the spy photos of this thing for at least a good three years now, three, four years now, and it's it's been a long gestation for it. Um, and uh, apparently, it, you know, it'll be offered with a number of different powertrain options, uh, you know, starting with, you know, basic uh, small block V8s, you know, and it's supposed to be priced, you know, from like the 60, 60 between 60 and $70,000 for the base model, which, you know, make it means it probably won't, you know, be, you know, anything like the, uh, the Ford GT with its full carbon fiber tub, you know, it'll probably be an aluminum tub and things like that, which is fine uh, for, for a road car. Um, you know, and then the top end versions are expected to have a, a variant of the um, the Blackwing V8 that is in the Cadillac CT6. Oh, the V8 that they um, said absolutely v- not. It won't be in anything else. Well, it won't be in anything else with 4.2 liters of displacement. I see. Which means it'll probably have like 4.5 liters of displacement <laughs> and more boost and, you know, another 100 or 150 horsepower. Yeah, that really confused me when GM, again, doing a classic GM move, like, nope, we're going to develop this one engine, a billion dollar program for one division. It's like, why? Yeah. Are for, you stupid? For a very low volume car. Yeah. So clearly it's going to have to be in something else. Uh, or oh, or yeah. they're going to go bankrupt again. Either, either or. Yeah. <laughs> no, it, it'll... It'll 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 get used, you know. I mean, it, it won't it won't be exactly the same, but it'll it'll be the same base basic architecture. Right. Yeah, same enough. Um, so, what else do we know about it? Are they going to make uh, any electrified versions, or has the platform been there's, designed? There's for been it? rumors of a hybrid, uh, but nothing confirmed yet. Uh, I think we we've heard that it will be uh, a seven speed dual clutch transmission, a Tremec uh, seven speed DCT uh, as the only transmission, which is mm. that's the same basically the same transmission that's in the um, uh, in the new uh, Shelby GT five hundred. The the gearbox of sadness. Yeah. <laughs> nice. <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure but, it's good. Yeah. But... I mean, other other than that, you know, we don't really know any other details at this point. You know. So probably some, starting somewhere in the 450 to 500 horsepower range and going up to, you know, somewhere around, you know, 750, 800 horsepower at the top end. It's going to be a lot of car for the 75-year-old guys that buy it. <laughs> well, you know, so, so, are, so are Ferraris and, uh, that's, that's true. Uh, and Ford GTs. Yeah. You know, maybe, maybe they'll get some new customers. Uh, well, so here's the, the problem with the, the Corvette. I mean, I love it, and it's a it's a performance bargain. It doesn't get the respect I feel that it's 
sort of deserves because it's always well and i think that's part of why they're going to a mid-engine design um because they you know nobody nobody takes a front engine car like that seriously why uh in 2019 i can't for the same reason that people buy suvs instead of oh my god i mean they are not people are not rational i drove they don't don't look at what it actually does they look at what they think it might be able to do on paper okay so uh i think the last press Corvette I had was a long time ago now. It was a, it was a C6, but it was a 4LT. So it looked really good. Uh, it, it wasn't, you know, the grand sports or anything. It was so quick. <laughs> and, yeah. Uh, just, it drove really, really well. Um, and it, for the price, you've run out of talent well before the car runs out of capability. And so it doesn't really matter where the engine is in that car. It's just well done. That's a, that's, that is a fantastic sports car. Well, you know, and, and even though the engine is in front, you know, it's back behind the front axle. So it's technically a front. I, I got yelled at on Twitter and, for saying that. And, and <laughs> um, you know, it's got a rear transaxle, you know, so the weight is balanced, you know, it's a 50, 50 weight distribution, you know, so I mean, anybody that, you know, tries to, you know, downplay the capabilities of the Corvette, you know, at least of you know, any, you know, modern C6 or C7 Corvette, you know, it's as good as anything on the road, you know, in its, uh, you know, in its performance range. So, you know, I mean, it, it, may, yeah, it may not be able to keep up with the McLarens of the world, but, you know, it'll certainly run with, with any 911 or, uh, you know, you know, V8 engine Ferrari. And, and yeah. you can buy two Corvettes for the price of a, of a McLaren, if not three. <laughs> yeah, you, I mean, you could buy, you could buy two ZR ones yeah. for the price of a <laughs> so, McLaren. There's that, you know, and that's a yeah, yeah. Speaking of which, I saw one yesterday at uh, Cars and Coffee, and that's that is just a massive wing on that thing. Yeah, McLarens are ridiculous. There's a dealership here in town that is just. I drive by it periodically just to get my fix. <laughs> yeah. All right, next up, what do we got? Uh, oh yeah. What? I was gonna. I was gonna. Fill, we got. Um, if you ever wanted that thirty-five thousand dollars Model Three from Tesla, you're never gonna Te- get it. <laughs> well, at least not new. You. Well, you you might be able to get it, but you, Tesla's gonna make you. This work is for one it. I wish I could you're, sing because I want to break out into that Beyonce. Never gonna get I, it. Never gonna get it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, just you know, just over a month ago. Elon Musk, you know, held a conference call and announced that we're finally going to start selling the $35,000 Tesla uh, Model 3, and we're going to close all our stores, and all our sales are going to be online only. And then within a week, it's like, uh, okay, we'll keep the stores open, uh, but we're still going to f- focus on online sales and, you know, use the stores for deliveries. Uh, and, you know, they, they promised, you know, on February 28th when they had the, the – when they made the original announcement that – you know, they, they said that, you know, you'd be able to get the $35,000 Model 3 standard range, as they called it, um, you know, within about two weeks. And as of yet, it doesn't appear that they've actually delivered one to any customer anywhere in the world. Um, and now they've, uh, this week, they made it vastly more difficult to actually order a $35,000 Model 3 um, for some reason. Uh, you know, even though they emphasize, you know, buying your car online. Um, you cannot actually order a model a thirty-five thousand dollar Model Three online. You can to order one. You either have to get to a Tesla store and do it in person, 
or um, you know, get on the phone and call Tesla and beg them to sell you one, uh, at which time they will almost assuredly spend as much time as necessary to upsell you to one of the more expensive models. I don't understand they why. They really don't want you to buy one. Why should you beg them to sell a car to you? They should be begging you to buy their cars that are assembled poorly in a tent. <laughs> I don't disagree. I yeah. uh, and 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 the, and the strange thing is, you know, when they announced the thirty five thousand dollar car, you know, in order to get down to that price point, they had to decontent it. So you know, it had the smaller battery, uh, but it also had manual cloth seats. You know, instead of the power seats that are in all the other Model Threes, and you know, they eliminated some other features. But now. For the one that they're selling, um, you know, only uh, over the phone or in person, you actually um, get the what they call the standard range plus model, which still has the power leather seats and and other features, but uh, features like autopilot uh, are not available. You can't get autopilot on the thirty five thousand dollar model. Um, you you know, various other features are actually disabled in software, even though the hardware is there. Um, yeah, you know, it's just it's yeah. Crazy. I don't so I don't get how it's any cheaper for them to disable money. the software and leave the hardware in place. I mean, I get that it's expensive yeah. to take the hardware well, that, out. That's why they, that's why they made it so hard to buy because um, it's actually they're actually going to lose more money on everyone they sell than they would have with the original configuration. Isn't that what startups do? I mean, I guess they're not really a startup, but they're just kinda, it's not a startup anymore. Like, yeah. I, no, not a fifteen-year-old company it, is yeah, not a startup. You can't. Or sixteen years you, old it's now. All, but it's valued want, as a startup. That's the difference. And the they want, logic right, of they Wall want Street. the cachet. <laughs> right. They, everybody so, still thinks they're an upstart, which is oh, okay, fine. But and so up, startup companies are supposed to just torch cash. So they're they're doing all right there. <laughs> yeah. And and the other thing that they've done is on all the other uh variants of the Model Three, uh autopilot is now standard. You you cannot get, you know, um any other Model Three without autopilot. So it's you know, they're forcing that option on customers, you know, whereas before uh, it was somewhere around a, a 60 or 70 percent take rate. Now it's going to be 100 percent. So they actually raised the prices on all the others again. So, you know, they they really don't want to um, they, they don't they just they just don't want to sell that car. They, they want to be able to claim that you can get a thirty five thousand dollar Model 3 without actually selling any. Which I believe in is is known as uh, um, bait and switch. <laughs> I, I can understand wanting to dissuade buyers from buying the thing that they lose the most money on. It's kind of like the idea of compliance cars, too. So while we can be real snarky about it, they're not the only automaker that makes a thing that they really don't want you to buy. Right. And, you know, traditionally, you know, every automaker has offered, you know, lowball versions of, you know, their, their more popular models. And, you know, dealers, you know, would... You know, they might stock one and keep it in the back of the the back of the lot somewhere. You know, with you know manual seats and everything. You know, just so they can advertise it. Yeah, we've we've got a, you know, got this car for you know eighteen thousand dollars. You know, and when you go look at it, you realize, oh, you know, I I really wanted power windows and not manual crank windows and you know these a few other features. And so, well, come on over here. We've got a whole bunch of them over here. You know. <laughs> So they're they're essentially what they're doing is they they have grown up into a real car company because they're behaving just like every other car company. You know, and it's funny on on Twitter, you know, people were complaining about, you know, why does Tesla keep changing the prices on on their cars? You know, and Elon Musk responded 
you know, that well, traditional car companies do this all the time. They constantly change the prices on their cars. And, you know, they don't, you know, the dealers will haggle on the price of the car. Car companies don't usually change the prices that frequently. Uh, and, you know, what, what they're, you know, but, you know, the other thing is it also undercuts the argument that Tesla is a different kind of car company because they, they're behaving just like traditional car companies well, always have. So they're, they're really right. not. I responded to that tweet with something to that effect. Like, you know, so let me understand that, that now the measurement for Tesla is a traditional car company, you know, and he didn't. Yeah. When it's convenient. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think it, it, car companies also do this too. Like they'll they'll conveniently justify what they're doing, either in sort of say like, well, yes, we're a car company, and car companies do this, or yes, we do this that other car companies don't. And depending on which way the wind blows or what point they're trying to make, and they'll they'll all do that. So. Uh, Tesla is just in this position where they're very visible and they're way more blatant about it. So I, I, maybe they should consider that before they let Elon speak again. Oh, that's not going <laughs> to. Yeah. Well, they, they should, they should just take away his Twitter account. But, um, I, no, I, I mean, I continue to be really frustrated by Tesla because there's so much potential there and they're like, they're almost there. They, they just need, need a few people to come in there and shape up their manufacturing a bit. Uh, so they can they can get those lines running efficiently. They clearly don't have uh, you know Poka Yoke or just in time down because the cars are going out with super crazy defects. They got stockpiles of parts. Like all of that stuff is is solvable. I don't want to say it's easily solvable because it takes effort. But all of the other car companies have figured it out, uh, and and that's really like I think that's a big part of what they need uh, to to move beyond this this current position. And I. I don't know that they're ever going to get there. And that's a shame because the, the product is really good in a lot of ways and it has potential to be better and to actually be a legit car company. Yeah, I think, I mean, he had such momentum in many ways, but I'm, I am, when you, when you look online and see people's, you know, as you move into people's feedback and as you move into mainstream, the tolerance level of people goes down. I mean, it degrades, you know, and so people are going to be like, I don't want to put up with this. I'm, I, I just want to go to a dealer. And that's one of the things that, right. you know, vehicles like the Audi e-tron, the Jaguar I-Pace, you know, more traditional manufacturers are going to have that dealer support and that service support that Tesla is going to continue to struggle against. So, you know, I think Audi got a lot of flack for the e-tron. I know we talked about this a little bit last week, you know, but I would trade 30 miles of range for a reliable dealer network all day long. Yeah, I would as well. Yeah. And and not having to wait, you know, months and months for exactly. service parts. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's sort of the thing you can sell. You can sell that thing, right? That premium thing probably once, maybe twice. But if the, if the sales support and the ownership experience isn't there, you're not, you're not going to get that third time. You know, I mean, you, and you see it with, I hate the comparison with phones, but you see it with phones too. You know, people move around because they, they want to try the cool new thing, but they'll they'll move back and forth between Android and iPhone and, uh, you know, Pixel or, or whatever. You know, if, if that's what you want to be doing, there's 
less tolerance for having to put up with that crap, even on the people who are early adopters. Right. But definitely as you get down, you know, for me, like I want a hundred dollar phone that can make phone calls and can do a few things. I don't care about most other things with it, but if it's, if it's not going to be reliable, I, I'm going to switch. Well, I will tell you, I mean, <laughs> like, my my friends at Strategic Vision, uh, which is a new car buyer survey, they have repeatedly said over the last few years that Tesla owners are the most passionate, most enthusiastic. They love their car more than any other car owner. And interestingly, it used to be they were seeing the, that type of effusive praise from Chevy Volt with a V owners and tesla actually uh actually superseded them so it'll be it'll be very interesting to see as we move into model three owners if that same loyalty remains and as you talked about if they are repeat customers because people's tolerance is is pretty low you don't have to put up with it you know, that's the thing is there's so much there's so many choices and Tesla is going to start facing significant com- competition. And so, yeah. you know, it's something that I'll definitely be tracking to see how Model 3 owners may differ from Model S and and Model X owners. Yeah, I mean, you know, you can go buy a you know a Honda Accord or Toyota Camry or a Civic, you know, for twenty five thousand dollars. And have a car that's going to run reliably for 10, 15 years without a problem. You know, you just rotate the tires and, you know, put gas in it and and change the oil a couple times a year. And you're going to be good to go. And, you know, when if in, you know, on the rare occasions when something does go wrong, you know, you, you can be pretty confident that the dealer is going to be able to fix it, you know, usually the same day. And, you know, that's that's what people rely on for their transportation. They they need to know that they're going to, you know, it's going to be there for them every day, you know, that it's going to get them to work and school and wherever else, uh, you know, and they're not going to have to mess around with it, you know, spending, you know, two thirds of its life in the dealership waiting for parts. Yeah. Well, and I think really where they're going to lose um, people and they've, they've already lost some cachet is the, uh, the like the, the Model X, you know, well, that's a family car, you know, that's the, the SUV slash minivan thing and so when you've got a family of small kids or whatever in the car and the thing breaks or won't go and you're stranded like it's not just you you know uh rich executive guy with vanity plates it's you and your family and it's much more of a hassle and stress to now figure out okay how do we get this thing towed where does it have to go what are we driving in the meantime how long is it going to take to fix like there's a, a big impact and i think that as you move down market you're not going to have that people just want the car to be a car they don't want to be necessarily like uh you know influencers they, don't, they just want the thing they don't want work, the drama you know? yeah um so I, I can see why they don't want to sell you the $35,000 car. I think they should put their efforts. If I were if I were Tesla, I would put all of my effort into actually making a $35,000 car. Whether it's the Model 3 or like the very next things, nope, we're going to completely shift gears here. And we're, we're going to make that, that $35,000 or $25,000 car. And yeah, it'll be basic. It'll have, uh, you know... It, it it will be set up so that we can at least break even at 
you know, whatever sort of price point and, and it will be different. That's, that's a big undertaking because I don't think any of their platforms are set mm-hmm. up for that right now where they, they can be flexibly trans, you know, transformed. And, and if, and, and if you don't want to wait for Tesla to do that, you know, you can just go down to your local Chevrolet or <laughs> Nissan or Honda, uh, Hyundai or Kia dealer and get a, a, you know, an EV that goes, you know, to between 200 and 250 miles, you know, for that same price point. All right. We, we, we should move on. <laughs> yes. Um, One more topic. Yeah, so the, the last topic, uh, this is more of a media critique than it is um, about a vehicle. But the New York Times, uh, I guess it was last week, uh, published a story. And it was actually a pretty interesting story about the Boeing 737 MAX, which uh, there's been a couple of crashes. And they're trying to figure out why it's crashed. Uh, and one of the concerns is that they tweaked an older airframe to be more fuel efficient with more powerful engines. And that changed the, the dynamics of it. And because it's a a lot more, you know, intensive and expensive to redesign the airframe, they used software to compensate. Like none of this is really groundbreaking. This is done all the time. It may be the way it was implemented here is, is bad. Certainly the way Boeing has uh, informed pilots who actually fly the thing, it looks like it could use uh, some some revisiting and the regulatory capture uh, where they kind of like Boeing said it was good. So the FAA said it was good is, is to me, that's weird. But, you know, the New York Times, when we're covering these things, planes, cars, boats, whatever, you know, trains, it's really, really important for us to have perspective and an understanding of the thing we're covering. So their lead on it was basically Boeing 737 MAX, 1960s design, 1990s computing power, and paper manuals. I don't know if that's supposed to be a criticism. None of them on their own are bad. You know, paper manuals don't crash. Uh, 1990s computing power, if it's up to the task, like, that doesn't bother me. That's reliable. Uh, because it's hardware that's been around for so long. Uh, the 60s design, I mean, again, if it was designed well, who cares? <laughs> you know, I, I still use, uh, you know, recording consoles that were designed in the 60s, and, and people actually seek that stuff out because in some ways it's more desirable than the, the stuff we have now. So I, I, I don't know. It seems irresponsible on, on the New York Times part, and I, I just I wanted to, to see what your guys' opinion of it was. Well, you know, I think that you know there are, there's there's certainly is, you know some of the issues r- around the Max are in fact delayed, um, directly related to the fact that it is such an old design. You know, if you you know the, the 737's chief competitor is the Airbus A320 uh, family, you know, which was designed in the 1980s, right? Much newer. And you know, if you if you look at the you know this article, the, the Times article, the the lead photo they have on here is actually of the original 737 prototype. And one of the things you'll notice you know, if you look at that compared to the, you know, the, the Max or any recent 737 is the engines are entirely different. You know, back in the 1960s when they designed this thing, you know, they didn't have big, you know, high bypass turbofan engines, which are much larger in diameter. And, you know, so they designed it around the engines of the time, which were, you know, much skinnier. And, you know, part of the problem is that, you know, the... Um, you know, because of, because they designed it that way, um, the 737 actually has fairly short landing gear, so it sits fairly low to the ground. When you see one on the ground and you see it next to an A320, you know the the A320 sits up much higher. It's got longer landing gear, 
you know, in order to clear the larger, more modern engines. And so they, every time that Boeing has had to update the 737 over the last 50 years, you know, they, they keep having to basically hack it to figure out how, you know, how are we going to fit these bigger engines without scraping them on the ground without, <laughs> you know, completely redesigning the, the landing gear because there's nowhere for them to, you know, make longer landing gear so it sits up higher. <clears throat> and so part of that, you know, is what led to where we are today. You know, the, the latest generation has gone to, again, even larger engines because those, those larger engines are more efficient. They're, they have larger fans on them, so they're they're more they're um, they're much more fuel right, efficient. They move more air. It's basically right. the, the core. But the but but the the problem is you can't fit those big engines under the wing like they did on the those early seven thirty sevens. So they have to hang it, you know, put it on these pylons that are le- reaching out from the engine or from the wings and you know up higher in order to clear everything. And so you have this this kind of crazy hack job that they've done, which you know mostly works. Um, but you know, with the latest generation as they went to even larger engines, you know, that that's what led them to go to this maneuvering control augmentation system, which is an automation system that is designed to, um, compensate for the, the extra weight and lift that these new engines make and try to make the, the new 737 fly basically the same as the old 737 so that they don't have to right. retrain. Pilots. Right. Cause that, yes. And that, so Right there, I think that's really the core of the issue is Boeing was trying to, to skate by. And and so when covering it, like, that's the story. Not not the, the fact that the plane is old or that engineers were pressed really hard to to make changes in an economic you know, way and, and make compromises. See, the engineering side of the story is fascinating because, yes, like, w- when you're talking about it, the, the first inclination is like, well, if they've got bigger engines that – hang lower just make the landing gear taller well you can't because there's nowhere for it to go why is there nowhere for it to go you know like because it's this old design right. uh but the fact that like you're boeing is is putting this out and not not retraining the pilots not requiring simulator time or anything like that like that's to me the story and and i don't know i find on the the car side of things too like we were just talking about tesla and you know we we have a certain level of understanding because we follow it. And I feel like, um, it's easy for us to get, I, I guess, uh, written off as, as sort of like cynics because the general public has been fed a different story about Tesla from the media. Again, like it's the car company that's changing everything. Right. So, uh, it, it's like a responsibility when we're covering, um, I guess this whole sector. I, I don't know. I th- uh, it, it rubbed me the wrong way. I suppose the way it was posed. Well, yeah, because the assumption is that everything that we do right now is somehow better, right? That's the thing is that the assumption is that the because it's if it, if it's software related or technology related, it must be better than it was back in the '60s, and that's not always the case. Yeah, or, or um, I'm sorry, I just you, no, no. We, or we've got we've got writers who don't who don't know the sector that they're, they're covering. And I, I do see that with, especially with, um, well, I mean, vehicles. look at what the New York times recently put out about how nobody's going to be driving a car. Right. Yes. And they, ju- I, they just I, did that, that piece op-ed, fun. you know, a couple of weeks ago. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was Kara, Kara yeah. Swisher's op-ed. I mean, I don't, you yeah, know, was... I'm, I'm not an aviation expert at all, but I do think that reading this kind of stuff, you know, skirting by, you know, some of, some of the, 
some of the safety features that were optional for companies like Ethiopia Air and Lion Air, they should never have been optional. And, you know, but I also think that we can relate some of this, you know, we were talking earlier about some of the the HMI and dealing with some of the infotainment systems and such that you if you if you do not take the time to familiarize yourself with this, with the technology that's in your vehicle, it can be so distracting that you crash. And we've seen that. And I think that, you know, with this, what's tragic about these pilots is that the emphasis was not on you have got to be retrained on this and you can't fly this, this plane until you are properly trained on this. And that's sort of the emphasis that I, I don't get the impression was. And in fact, exactly. it was the exact opposite, you know, that you don't need any training. You can just hop from a 737-800 into, into a MAX and it'll and be exactly is, the same. That right. to me is the absolute tragedy because both of these crashes could have been avoided. Hundreds of people, you know, and now and then on top of that, all of the you know revenue loss, obviously, it's not nearly it's not as important, but, you know, there's. There's still economic and and cost to this now beyond the tragic loss of life. So it's it's, ter- it's just terrible. Yeah, it, it's interesting to compare and contrast this situation with Boeing and the the seven thirty seven Max with something like um, the the Columbia disaster, where it's not any one thing. Uh, it's a uh, and it's the same with uh, you know the other, with the with Challenger as well. It's not any particular one thing. It's a cascade of things. The so Challenger was more, I guess, one thing. But well, and and it and the same is true of most car crashes. It you know that you know you always hear the statistic that ninety four percent of car crashes are caused by human error. Well, that's true only up to a point. You know, it's the human error may have been the last. Right. You know part of that, the last step in that cascade, there's usually a whole bunch of circumstances that led up to the human making an error, you know, that ultimately led to a crash. You know, they did not respond to these other circumstances in the best way possible. And that's what ultimately led to the crash. So you're, you're right. It's, it's, it, these things are always way more complicated or almost always way more complicated than just a single point of failure. Yeah, oh, absolutely. And, you know, it, it, in terms of car crashes too, I saw a story the other day where it was, um, again, reiterating that uh, s- smaller cars have less or have more injuries and in crashes. You know, the same kind of thing. They crash more and they're, they're, you tend to get injured more. So if you want to be safe, get an SUV. It's like, well, hang on a second. Why? Why did the statistics tell you that? And I didn't look deeply into it, but in the past, when I've I've dug into those kind of numbers, it's the the combination of who's driving, what their training is, what their age is, what the situation is, what the speeds are, uh, all together. You know, you can make broad comparisons and say, yes, SUVs tend to be, you know, you'll be injured less because they go slower. They're driven by older folks who are being more conservative. You know, a small, light hatchback, for example, is going to be generally that's a younger, less experienced driver uh, who doesn't have as much crash structure around them. They get hit by an SUV, <laughs> you know. So. Well, you know, and, and the, other, the other flip side of that is while occupants in SUVs may die less, you know who dies more? Drivers and pedestrians. <laughs> yeah, oh, pedestrians. No, pedestrians. Sure, yeah. And and pedestrians have actually been the single largest 
segment of growth in, in traffic fatalities over the last five years. Yeah. Well, I can believe it, especially with everybody. But being even, in their even that's, you know, even, yeah, well, I mean, even yeah, even that one, you know, is not as simple as just you know because we have more SUVs. You know, people, you have the problem yes, of distracted I was just walking. Say that. You know, people walking, walking and texting. Well, I mean, you get distracted you know, walking and attention. driving. <laughs> like, yeah, I hit a bump. I didn't know what it was. Yeah, no, it's it is, but it's it's crazy when you see people that are crossing the street and they are just totally not paying attention at all. Yeah. You know, it's it's incredible. And so you do you have it's always a mix of factors. Yeah. And so I I just hope that um, at least for whatever part we do, we're trying to bring some understanding of the the subjects we're talking about, Uh, because I feel like there really is a very, very interesting story of of compound failures in the case of the 737 Max in particular, you know, there's a lot of material right there. So we have to be careful when we're saying, well, it's old, so it's not very good. Or it has paper manuals, so it's not very good. It's like, I'm I'm sorry. We sent three guys to the moon and back with <laughs> paper manuals. <laughs> much, much, more, much more primitive technology than what yeah. we're using today. Um, so, and I, again, that's a really, really common thing to say. I get it, but... It, old doesn't necessarily mean bad. Paper doesn't necessarily mean bad. Like none of that really, none of those are the problem. And you, you kind of miss the boat by using those as your, your headline or your lead. And that's, I guess my criticism of the New York times this week <laughs> <laughs> for now. Um, so I, I, you know, maybe, maybe it's like a call out to uh, listeners too, rather than just listening to us bitch. Cause I, I don't want to turn into a media criticism podcast. Uh, there's already some very good ones to yeah. do that. <laughs> um, call us out on stuff too, or because or, you know, it makes the conversation that much more interesting if we spout off about something that we have missed half the story. And it, we're not doing that to obfuscate. Uh, so if there's a chance for us to get more educated too, like certainly please reach out. You know where to find us. <laughs> so uh, let us know. Yes. And I'll, I'll, I'll give it a rest. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, did we have any questions or anything? I know we're, we're a little bit, um, we're, we're, we're headed yeah, to New not, York. Not that I yeah. saw. So, and you guys are headed to New York, uh, Tuesday, Monday, Tuesday, or anyway. Yeah. I'll, I'll be there tomorrow yeah. morning. Yeah. We've got a couple of embargoed, uh, showings that are going on, I think Monday and Tuesday. And then Wednesday is the show for the media and press. Uh, Thursday, there's some press events as well. And then Friday, is it open to the public? I think on Saturday. Yeah, I think it. Yeah, uh, yeah I think Saturday yes. it opens. So be sure to go if you're in the New York area. It's such a great show. I know the Javits Center can be a huge pain to get to sometimes, but there's plenty of parking in that area. You can it's it's walking distance from Times Square, and it's just a great show. I always really enjoy Javits. It's nice and contained. There's fun things. Jeep always has something outside. The weather's not supposed to be that great, but it it'll be okay. Well, well, now now that they finally <laughs> fixed the roof, you know, and it's, it's not leaking. But no, like but it I really, I really like this show rains. a lot. I think it's really cool. So New York was the first show I went to way back in 1995. Um, I went and saw the Ford GT90 there with the little the hologram face and the display. Oh yeah. yeah. Um, and you know, we took Amtrak down. We came into Penn. Uh, it's the same same kind of thing. It's it's a, a short walk from Penn, I think. Yeah, Amtrak. it's, it's yeah, very it's short from Penn. Um, it, it is, it's a good show. And then you're right around the corner from the Intrepid, yes. which has a freaking space shuttle <laughs> on it or the SR 71. 
Uh, it's the only Essex class carrier, I think, on the East Coast you can go tour. Um, and you're right by B and H. So it's it's a cool I like that show a lot. I'm kinda I'm actually quite disappointed I won't yes. be there. Um yeah, you just have to be I think I'm not sure when Passover is oh, this yeah. year. You know, B B and H is closed on closed on pa- closed for Passover. That's correct. Um so yeah, you you can but, at least walk by the building. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, all right. Well, next time we'll talk about coverage from the New York show. Are you guys excited for anything in particular, or uh, it, can we not talk about that yet? Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm definitely looking forward to seeing the uh, the Lincoln Corsair. Oh yeah. Um, you know, I think that's going to be a, a very interesting product in the in the compact um, premium crossover segment. Um, the uh, Pininfarina is going to be there with the Batista electric hypercar that they showed in Geneva. Um, going to uh, uh, around lunch and round table with them on Tuesday. Um, let's see, uh, both Nissan and, uh, Audi are going to be showing off some 50th anniversary special edition models celebrating the 50th anniversary of Nissan performance in the U S with, you know, the 50th anniversary of the Z and then, uh, Audi's 50th anniversary in the U S market. Genesis Um, is showing something that I'm not sure about yet. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) I I would, I would assume that's probably going to be, uh, their first crossover. I would hope so. Uh, probably yeah. production version. Oh of that. wow, that's that's. Uh, I didn't even realize that, but that's right. They don't have a crossover, and they they sorely yeah. they need do. One. They and I've Hyundai's going to well, have their new. They've oh, they showed the they've hint, they showed the crossover, not not the production version. They, right, they had last a concept year in L A. Two years two ago? years ago. Uh, well, they had the GX ninety okay, in New York yeah. two years ago. So that'll be fun. And so yeah. And then the Hyundai Venue as well is another uh, subcompact crossover that actually slots in below the um, the Kona. They're, I mean, their whole lineup's going to be crossover soon. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. It's going around. Um, yeah. <laughs> yep. So it should be a good show. We should have plenty to talk about next time we uh, sure. convene. All right. Well, All in right. the meantime, you can find us. Uh, we are at wheelbearings.media. Uh, we are on Twitter at WheelBearingsCast. Uh, the only A is the, or the only vowel is the A in cast. Uh, I am Boston underscore Auto, uh, and you folks are. Uh, tell us your handles. So mine actually changed this week to uh, Rebecca underscore Drives, uh, and that's my Twitter account now. Uh, Re- uh, Rebel Car Chick is kind of hidden in the background now. I know it's not as fun, but I did need to promote my website. <laughs> And I'm. You can find me at Sam Abu. If you can spell it, you can get rewarded for finding it. Just type Sam Navigant, and you'll find him. Yeah. (laughs) If you get if you get anything close to to my name, it'll usually find me. All right. Well, thanks for listening. We'll catch everybody next time. Thanks, everyone. All right. Bye. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. 
Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.